Oh no, love. You're not alone. You're watching yourself, but you're too unfair. You've got your head all tangled up, but if I could only make you care. Oh no, love. You're not alone. No matter what or who you've been, no matter when or where you've seen, all the knives seem to lacerate your brain. I've had my share. I'll help you embrace the void. I hate purity. I hate goodness. I don't want virtue to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine Falling so slow Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional, I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 186 of Embrace the Void, where the kingdom of ends is just one starship away. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we're talking ethics, communication, and the culture wars. So, let's make with the charity. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... Something. My guest this week is Angel Eduardo, a writer, musician, photographer, and designer in New York City who is published in Arrow, CFI, and Newsweek. Angel, would you like to say hi to the void? Oh, hello. I've been screaming into the void for my whole life. So it's, it's nice to say hello. Yeah, it feels a little better, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's a little better, yeah. So yeah, thanks for coming on the show. We've had a bunch of exchanges on Twitter, and I've read uh, quite a few of your articles, um, and I really wanted to talk through some of them with you here. I feel like when I go into your articles, like I have a desire to agree with you, and then I often come away still feeling frustrated. And so I want to try to maybe figure out why that is and work <laughs> through it with you a little bit. Um, before we talk about those, though... Um, Okay. You know, my feeling is that a lot of your stuff, while it doesn't sort of explicitly say the word identity, is often connected to, I think, identity-related discourses. So just to sort of give people a little bit of where you're coming from, I guess, could you say a little bit about how you identify personally, politically, whatever sort of identities feel salient to you mm -hmm. as an individual? Yeah. I mean, I could go on and on about this, but I think it's complicated because... I don't see myself as, in, in my day-to-day, -day, I don't see myself as more than just myself. I'm Angel. I look in the mirror and I'm Angel. And I primarily think in those terms. I think about, you know, what do I think? How do I feel? And not necessarily, you know, um, 
not necessarily how does my group feel, how does my tribe feel, because I don't feel personally that I have a tribe. I don't feel personally that I have a group. It's not salient to me. Um, but of course, I am, you know, by definition, a member of many different groups, right? I mean, I'm, I'm Hispanic. My parents are from the Dominican Republic. They're, you know, they're immigrants. So I'm first generation American. So there's a whole piece of that. I speak Spanish. I love the Spanish culture. I love the Dominican culture that I'm a part of, um, you know, the food and the music and all that stuff. And that's very much a part of who I am and um, how I grew up. You know, I'm, I live in New York City. I'm from New York City. Uh, there's a vibe to that that I feel connected to. Um, mm. You know, I feel connected to various various things like that i mean but but generally speaking you know when i'm looking in the mirror i don't see a dominican guy i don't see a person of color i don't see you know i don't, I don't see a millennial i don't see I, I just see myself i just see a person and i think that comes from when i was younger attempting to fit into those groups that were kind of you know i was a part of just by definition and so i was like well you know they I must be accepted here because it's part of who mm -hmm. I am. Right. Mm -hmm. But it didn't quite work out. Like, you know, there was always something off about me that forced me to be on the outside anyway. And so it, it sort of, those situations sort of forced me into seeing myself as a part and seeing myself just as myself and having to just sit with myself and sit with my thoughts and sit with my personality and just figure out who I am, not really in relation to anybody else, but just, as myself. Yeah. I mean, I think that's very interesting. And I do think that, you know, a lot of folks deal with like struggles about authentic identity. Um, and like, mm -hmm. how do you have that authentic identity with these communities? Some of which you feel like you are required to be a part of other ones you feel like you want to be a part of, but don't necessarily feel potentially included in perhaps. And I think, I think that's interesting that it could drive that sort of drives you a little bit towards sort of just wanting to be sort of broadly anti-identitarian in the sense of um, sort of pushing back on emphasis on those kinds of identities, it seems like. Is that is that how you sort of experience it? Yeah, sort of. Uh, I mean, I went through phases, right? It didn't, it mm -hmm. didn't just happen this way. I struggled for, you know, I was a new kid at school in third grade. I'm, I had just moved to New Jersey from New York, and that forced me to kind of examine all this stuff and try to figure out how can I fit in? How can I do this? And, you know, it starts, it starts in the silly ways that it is with little kids. You know, you want that bike that everybody has, you want those sneakers that everybody has. And my immigrant parents are like, fuck no, I'm not going to buy that for you. That's expensive. You know, mm -hmm. you don't need that. I got you sneakers already. But, and for me, it wasn't really about the sneakers. It wasn't really about the bike. It was about, this is a, a token for me to get in, right? I can, I can get in with everybody if I have the same stuff. That was mm -hmm. my thinking, right? Mm -hmm. And because I didn't get that, I was forced to just deal with the fact that I wasn't going to get in. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, later on, it becomes more like, well, I want girls to like me and I want, I want to be popular. I want to be like the cool kids. I want to sit at the cool kids table and it's not going to happen either. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you kind of in middle school, especially you're, you're trying to figure out who you are and at least for me and a lot of people that I, that I knew, you define who you are much more easily by defining what you're not. 
So you define what you're against and that makes you who you are. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like a negative thing. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, I hate, I hate pop music. I hate sports. I hate, you know, I hate school. I hate all these things. So I'm the guy who hates, I'm the guy who hates all this stuff. And that's my identity. But then I realized that that was super shallow. And I realized, you know, Justin Timberlake's got some pretty good songs and like, you know, it's mm-hmm. on the radio because other people are listening to it and my head is bobbing and I can't help it. And then I have to deal with that internal thing of like, well, am I erasing myself by liking this Justin Timberlake song? And, you know, then you realize, no, that's ridiculous, right? There's mm-hmm. so much more than that. Um, yeah, I think that's a very then, healthy evolution that people, a lot of people go through, right? Where they, right, yeah, the, yeah. the first experience we have as persons is defining our personhood in opposition. And that's why we start by saying no a lot, right? And then you slowly... Exactly unlearn that resistance-based oppositional uh, defiant version of yourself in that kind of way so what about politically though and it's also exhausting yeah it is it is very and you're right it is it is something that i think (laughs) is particularly heightened in the current environment as well where um there are lots of things to be sort of defining oppositionally towards um so what about politically i think you know we were chatting a little bit before this show and my sort of impression of your political position just based on reading the articles that we're going to talk about seems very different to how Mm. you self-identified when you, when we were chatting. So how do you sort of self-identify specifically politically? What, what sort of, what are your politics in that way? So this is another one of those things. So towards the end of the evolution for myself, what I realized is, Oh, okay. Um, a lot of people are avoiding doing necessary work on themselves, including me, um, by fitting into a certain paradigm, fitting into a certain group or team. Mm-hmm. And because because I had struggled so much to get into anything and I couldn't quite do it and there was always something off, there was always something that didn't jibe and I realized, well, I can't I can't hang with these people exactly because there's something weird about me uh, it, that translated into the political thing as well. I found myself going, ah, I don't know if I like this whole Democrat, Republican, left, right binary. Like it's, it doesn't, it doesn't work for me. And not because I found myself agreeing with both sides equally or anything like that. I've never voted for a Republican. I've never been compelled to vote for a Republican. Um, and it's unlikely that I ever will vote for a Republican. But I just have an aversion to, to, you know, just aligning myself with a side because the minute I do that, all I can think in the back of my head is what am I missing? What am I blinding myself to? So, Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I was registered as an independent ever since, uh, when I turned 18 in high school and they called up, everybody who turned 18, they called you into this room and they had you sign up and register to vote. And I immediately, without, without second guessing, I, I just chose independent. And I'm like, there's no way I'm, I'm picking a side here because it should be about the issues, right? Like you shouldn't be able to tell from my political affiliation, how I feel exactly about any, any particular issue. Um, you know, I prefer to be asked questions. I prefer to figure out what the details are because sometimes a conservative point of view makes more sense to me. And sometimes, you know, Mm -hmm. a super, super liberal point of view makes more sense to me. And these labels start to get 
really muddy and difficult and, you know, they mean different things to different people. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it's annoying for people when I, when I uh, refuse this stuff because then we have to sit down and have all these conversations, but I would really prefer it because the assumptions that people make based on labels Mm -hmm. never, they just never capture me. And so I've, after being frustrated for long enough, I realized, okay, look, if you're going to deal with me, you're not going to get stuff in a nice, neat little box. It's going to be annoying. I'm sorry. So you're just going to have to ask me a bunch of questions. Okay. So let me ask then, why <laughs> Why do you think that you have tended to and probably always will vote Democrat if you feel like you mm-hmm. do not identify, you identify in the way that you just described? Uh, well, just because, you know, that's it, that's where the majority of the ideas land somewhere in the left of the spectrum. Mm, um, mm-hmm. But it it's just that I don't feel the need to, because of that kind of plant my flag and say, I am a blank for, you know, just because it allows me the flexibility of saying, well, hold on a second. I don't necessarily agree with that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's that, there's that tendency in people to say, well, what do you mean? You're on our team. You have to agree with this. Um, so there's that, but then there's also the thing of, you know, the, the floor moving underneath you. And so mm-hmm. you think you're, at, you think you're in one spot on the left and then five years later, suddenly you're considered a conservative just because things have shifted, but you haven't, you know, my opinions haven't necessarily shifted from left to right, but, mm-hmm. you know, as you mentioned, when we were chatting before, I struck you as kind of like moderate conservative, I think you said, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that literally has never occurred to me, and no one has ever called me that before. Mm-hmm. Um, no one that knows me would say, "Oh, yeah, he's a conservative guy." <laughs> so, right, you know, I think it's that that speaks to the fluctuation of these labels and these terms and what they mean and what they mean for different people at different times, and that's why yeah, well, I find them mm-hmm. largely inconvenient. Well, so I mean, I think it's complicated because. You know, I don't know your particular policy views. Maybe we'll talk about some of them over the course of looking through some of these articles. But, like, I do think from, like, reading your approaches to certain kinds of issues, like issues around selfishness and meritocracy and cancel culture, mm. right? Like, I do I do believe that I have some sense of, like, what communal resources you are drawing on when you are forming your beliefs. I may be wrong a little bit, but I don't think I'm like totally off base essentially. Right. And I don't, that doesn't mean that I shouldn't then ask you a bunch of questions that I'm going to ask you here. uh, Right. But I do, I also, you know, and also the whole idea of like, um, you know, leaving your options open, not identifying with a group. I guess I lean the other way in the sense of, you know, I, I I will hate on the Democrats really hard uh, because they are, you know, a problem in a lot of ways. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I do think they are the best vehicle for genuine social change. Um, and I think being, you know, an outspoken Democrat who then criticizes the Democrats when they're doing things that aren't functional could, you know, potentially like the, like the counterpoint is, you, you know, you have more sway inside the house versus outside and of course you know we could debate whether that actually is the way things work um but i do think i'm also i'm sympathetic also to the idea of wanting to keep your options open i just think these are multiple ways that people could wrestle with um 
group identity in conjunction with wanting to resist orthodoxy, as you were saying. So, yeah, sure. I, so I think that yeah, makes sense. I can see that. Um, mm-hmm. It just this is the way that it works for me is is mm-hmm. I find myself getting lost with people when when I try to use a term or a label for myself. I just get lost and too many assumptions get made and I have to explain my way out of things. And it's Mm -hmm. easier to just say, look, I'm not part of the team. I agree with the team about A, B, C, D, and E. I disagree Mm -hmm. about F, G, H. And and the other thing is just I would love to want to vote for a Republican at some point. That would be really Mm -hmm. great because Mm -hmm. it just means something is working better than it is now, right? Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be. um, I I wrote a little bit about this um, and not not in a piece, but just in a, like a Twitter thread, I think where I had heard this. I don't know if it, if it was even a native American who said it, but it was a meme with a native American on it. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, left wing, right wing, same bird. Right. And when I, when I first heard that I was much younger and mm-hmm. for me, it echoed that sentiment of like, yeah, they both suck. Fuck them. Right. Mm-hmm. But then I realized that in that cynicism, that I had, I had forgotten about the bird, right? I was so focused on the wings. I forgot about what the point was. The point is the bird, right? Mm -hmm. So we have the left wing and we have the right wing and they're supposed to be working together to get the bird to fly. If, if we only have one wing working and we try to get off the ground, we're going to free fall. Right. So if if one, yeah, exactly. So if one wing or both wings are broken to varying degrees, we're not going to fly. And the whole point of everything is to fly. So mm-hmm. that's kind of where I'm at is, yeah, we, and we kind of need each other, right? You can't really fly with one wing. It doesn't work. The other one needs the other one for balance. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, that is an interesting conversation about the balancing of liberal and conservative and whether that's actually essential. I, I mean, I'm sympathetic to the idea that we need like a multi-party system, at least more than one party that is vaguely functional as a governing party for now. Um, But it's funny that you mentioned the label thing, because the first article that I wanted to talk about, the one in which I was, I think hopefully we can have the most closest to agreement here, I think, is one in which you invented a label. Um, But it's not a label for a group, right? It's a label for a kind of activity. Um, So this was a recent Uh, article you wrote about star manning. Um, Do you want to explain to folks what uh, you mean when you when you call, when you use the term star manning and how it is different from steel manning? Sure. So, um, it's it's yeah it's a basic uh, it's basically in that progression. So you mentioned steel manning. Star uh, steel manning is when you instead of engaging with a caricature of somebody's argument, which would be called the straw man fallacy, um, you engage with a robust version, an honest and charitable version of whoever you're speaking with's argument. Um, the so, for example, I mean, someone calling for gun control, right? They say, "Look, we we need to we need to rethink gun control. The mass shootings, it's too much. Um, we you know we really need to figure something out." And I feel like gun control could be something that we really lean into and make better. The straw man would be, "Oh, you want to take everyone's guns away, right? You wanna you wanna." Um, you want to take away my second amendment rights. Right. And that's mm-hmm. not necessarily the case. Right. Some, some people literally do say, no, I want you to literally have no guns, but um, a sensible person will say, no, I'm not trying to take your guns away. Right. That's a straw man. What I'm trying to do is figure out 
you know, some way to keep the wrong people from getting guns, right? And that's difficult and all that stuff, right? But the steel man would be, yeah, uh, okay, I mean, you're trying to stop mass shootings from happening as often as they happen. You're trying to prevent mentally ill people from having access to guns. You're going to, you want to make it more difficult in order to, and this mm-hmm. is where the star manning, the star manning comes up, in order to keep more people safe, in order to protect people, in order to avoid these horrible tragedies that happen way too often. Um, okay. And you, you're doing this because you care about people, you care about people's safety, and you're just trying to figure out the best way to do that. So star manning is about recognizing mutual good intentions and mutual goals. Mm-hmm. It, so, you know, even a, a pro-gun person and a not anti-gun, but let's say, you know, pro, pro-gun pro control person, right, can agree on, we don't want, you know, we don't want little kids in school to die, right? We definitely mm-hmm. don't want that because that's bad. So we're both on the same page here. We both want to figure out some way to make this not happen. Now, we probably disagree on the best way to get that to happen, but that's the goal here, right? Mm-hmm. And once we establish that, we're on common ground. We're on, we're not, we're not mortal enemies who are so fundamentally opposed that we see each other as monsters. We are, you know, we are people with a common purpose, just trying to figure out the best way to plan a route on the map to get to that destination. Um, okay. So that's what star manning is. So you, so you see it as focus on like, like emphasizing a, a sort of, um, a belief that everyone's motivations are generally good and generally convergent in that goodness to some extent that they converge around certain basic goods that we all agree are good. Is that sort of where your, where your head is here? Yeah, sort of. I mean, I think that, you know, people differ widely, but at bottom, we all want the same basic things, right? So Mm -hmm. I, I call it, we all want safety. We all want security. We all want satisfaction. We all want success, right? Uh Generally speaking. Now, how that manifests for people depends on a million different things, right? Where they grew up, what they value, you know, their psychology, their temperament, all that stuff. But generally speaking, everyone wants to be safe. Everyone wants to succeed. Everyone wants to have the things they need, right? Everyone Mm. wants to avoid suffering, you know, for, for the most part. Generally speaking, these are just true, right? And you can take this assumption to the bank that most people are behaving in such a way as to further that goal for themselves, however it is that they think is the best way to do that. Now, you do can you disagree this? on the best way, but mm-hmm. but that's the general idea is we have that in common and we can find that in any dispute with most people, we can find that common thing. Like the thing that's motivating you is also motivating me. And what we're actually at odds about is the method for doing that. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm sympathetic from a kind of moral foundation standpoint in the fact, and that I think we do all tend to draw on similar evaluative foundations. I'm curious, do you see this as sort of fundamentally different from the kind of the insight that, um, you know, everybody sees themselves as the good guy, as the hero in their story. And like, nobody is out there like 
you know, twirling their mustaches being villains for the sake, or like very, very few people are out there just being villain for the sake of being villains. Like even the people who are being villainous think they're doing it for good reasons in a sense. Yeah. Is that, is I that think that's the bullseye of it. Is, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone is the hero of their own story and mm-hmm. everyone has a justification for why, what they're doing or how they think something should be done will make the world better. Mm-hmm. Even if, even if they have a really myopic view of it, even if they haven't thought it through, even if they're totally wrong, mm-hmm. very, very, very few people are acting consciously to make the world a worse place to live. Okay, great. So I just wanted to make sure I was clear on sort of exactly what you were claiming here. So this is very interesting to me because I've been doing a bunch of reading this semester in class about sort of solutions to post-truth problems. And like what you're, what I think you're presenting here is one attempt at one kind of corrective to the kind of post-truth breakdown of discourse that I think we all experience a great deal. And what I think is interesting to me about this particular intervention is you know, a lot of folks in the sort of debate world will talk about how you shouldn't worry about the source of your argument, right? If I'm arguing with somebody, I shouldn't care about the person. I should just look at the argument. But in a sense, what you're saying is, and I'm not saying this is mm-hmm. in a bad way, right? I'm saying your emphasis, you're not, not, not just your only emphasis, but in this particular version of your argument, your emphasis is we need to take into account the person and specifically take into account them in, a, in an empathic thinking about their mindset kind of way that involves this kind of robust generation of what their mind is, what is going on in their mind, and then apply that to their argument and understand their argument through that lens. Is that, is that sort of what you think you're doing? And what do you see as the strengths of that approach? What is the sort of payoff in terms of how the argument goes if people act this way? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that, um, well, part of the reason that I came upon this is because I realized we needed a corrective because what was happening was not that people were not paying attention to the source and just paying attention to the argument. People were very much paying attention to the source, but they were often making assumptions about the source that were negative. Mm -hmm. So you know, mm-hmm. uh, the way that I put it was that, you know, we aren't just straw manning each other's arguments. We're straw manning each other. Mm-hmm. We're creating caricatures of the people who are making the arguments against what we, whatever it is we're arguing. We're, we're thinking of them as monsters. We're thinking of them as, you know, these people mm-hmm. want to destroy me. They want to erase me. They want to destroy America. They want to, you know, whatever it is. Um, and so this came about for me as a corrective to that as what it's, we can't possibly steel man each other's arguments if we're if we are convinced that the person making the argument is an absolute monster or is beneath contempt, you know, any of these things. So the, that assumption was a was a roadblock in our discourse as far mm-hmm. as I saw it. And okay. so what I wanted to do mm-hmm. was to say, um, you, look, you're most of the time you're wrong. Most of the time people mean well. They're trying to do what they think is right, even if they're wrong. Mm-hmm. But if you acknowledge that, then you meet them where they are, you understand where they're coming from in a much more fundamental way. And that allows you to actually have a disagreement that could get you somewhere. You could you could have a productive disagreement there because mm-hmm. you're no longer on the defensive. You're no longer thinking, 
I, I can't just defend my argument. I actually have to destroy this person because they're out to get me. It's that sort of thing. Okay, great. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm very largely in agreement with what you are saying here, right? I think there are a couple of ways that I want to, like, ask you to sort of flesh it out a little bit, but I, I'm very sympathetic, and I see this a lot in conspiracy theory land. One of the key features of conspiracy theories is a demonizing of the they that is running the conspiracy whether it's you know the illuminati or the woke or whoever it is right you characterize them as being these kinds of deeply immoral monsters so that you can explain why they are constantly escalating their evil plans in these kinds of ways um and i, I do think like that's just one version of it i think right. you're also right that like on a day-to-day -day kind of level people read each other in this very sort of pessimistic approach voice right where they like and, and part of that i think is just like written text is is um more likely to be emotionally misinterpreted but also i think people are going around looking for fights a lot um so i think you're right that there is a lot of that going <laughs> on there yeah <laughs> right um, now, that being said, let me, For let sure, me sort yeah. of nudge mm -hmm. this a little bit because I think there are some concerns that we can have with an approach like this, and there need to be, I think, some sorts of limits on it, right? So um, if the, you know, if your goal is to be charitable about motives and arguments, do you feel like you run the risk here some about, um, you know, that overt charitability being sort of taken advantage of by individuals who see that generosity of spirit and are acting in a disingenuous way and know how to, you know, win out in the discourse by taking advantage of your good-natured approach. <laughs> um, I don't know if I've encountered that. Um, I've been, you know, I've been basically doing dry runs of this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if I've encountered that myself um, in terms of, you know, someone getting away with it, because I think, I think uh, dishonesty makes itself evident pretty quickly. Hmm. If you're focusing on ideas, like I have, I haven't gotten to a point where someone else needed to tell me, for example, Hey, this person is completely taking you for a ride. Uh, and even if they were, I don't know, I feel like in order for them to take me for a ride, they would have to agree on certain principles and then kind of abide by them in the interaction. And so they'd be kind of doing the right thing by accident. Um, even if they don't mean what they're saying, they would have to, in order to convince me, they would have to be playing along with those rules, which would kind of be forcing them to do the right thing anyway. Is it, um, wait a minute. I wouldn't say that. So, so right. If I'm, if I'm playing the language game or playing the social reasons game with you, but I'm cheating, right. I'm following the rules enough to not get caught, but only right up until that point. And after that, right. I'm using every trick of sophistry in the book to like make my argument, my weaker argument look stronger or something like that. Um, you know, Right. You're saying that that doesn't happen or that like, I don't, I don't know how to make sense of the idea that you think it's readily apparent when there is so much disagreement. Like I don't often love the argument from disagreement, but when like for something to be apparent, it seems to me that there couldn't be a ton of disagreement about which individuals are sort of lying grifters in this kind of way. Um, yeah. Well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm misunderstanding because I think that 
none of what I'm advocating for mm-hmm. means that you accept an argument that doesn't make sense or that you can't very vehemently disagree with whomever it is you're speaking to. Uh, it's just, I just basically take off the table the idea that this is some kind of menace to society, this horrible human being mm-hmm. that needs to be stopped at all costs. All I have to care about is does their argument make any sense to me? Is it persuasive? And I can engage with the argument as as hard as I want. So, you know, the thing that I always say is, you know, to to people, all the respect and compassion that I can muster, mm-hmm. but to ideas, to arguments and ideas, the most judicious scrutiny. So, you know. So let um, me, yeah. So, so my concern would be you're so you 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 know you acknowledge that if I see you as a better person, it will influence how I hear and understand your argument, right? And hopefully for the better is what you're sort of saying here. And I guess what I'm saying is I, I imagine there are also situations in which to best understand your actual argument, what you are really trying to do with your argument, right? Not just the words, but their intent. Um, I I need to recognize mm-hmm. that you are doing something duplicitous, right? That you are, for example, feigning neutrality while actually promoting a particular agenda. Because once I understand that about your Uh motives, I will better be able to explain what is going on in your argument. Just like, conversely, if you are really genuinely a well-intentioned person, I will better be able to understand what's going on in your argument if I treat you as such. Do you agree that there are, that gotcha. all of those okay, cases yeah. exist and so, we need to distinguish between them? Yes, but the only thing about it that I would say is that even if someone is being duplicitous, mm-hmm. if someone is choosing to take that tack and be dishonest, um, I would say, number one, it's probably because they're not starmaning you, right? So they think, well, the ends justify the means. I, I have to destroy this person. So if dishonesty is the best way to do that, I don't care because it's worth it. But even then, they they think that that is the best course of action because it it leads them to whatever goal they have. And whatever goal they have, they have to think that it's a good goal. And so it, mm-hmm. it doesn't at all, it doesn't at all mean that everyone has the right intentions that everyone has you know the actual objectively best intentions it just means that whatever they whatever they're doing they think it's the right thing to do and no matter how wrong they are and so if you just recognize that mm-hmm. it just prevents you from seeing them as the mustache twirling monster and it just it just lets you see them as well i mean if i believed what they believed then yeah, I would think the same thing and I would be justifying my behavior just like they are. Right. That just allows you to connect with them on a certain level that that is it's impossible if you don't give them that. But that doesn't mean you agree with them. It doesn't mean that they're right. It doesn't mean that their goal is anything that makes sense. And it doesn't mean that they're not going to behave dishonestly, right? The dishonesty might be baked into their goals, but it's just that they still think dishonesty is okay in this particular scenario because reasons, you know? Yeah. I mean, as a moral luck advocate, I'm sympathetic to, you know, I could just as easily have been one of those people as someone who I think is genuinely well well motivated or something like that. Um, I do feel mm-hmm. like, you know, pushed to this point, 
all the all I feel left with mostly with this argument is that there's a reinforcement of pity towards individuals who I think are being duplicitous in those kinds of ways. I also still think that it's important, mm -hmm. you know, to understand just to, you know, for example, um, you know, like I don't think that you can fully understand um, Charles Murray's work, his literature without understanding the political project in which it is situated. And I think if you take it out of that context, because you are trying to, because you think of that as star manning him, right? That to me seems like it would be a, a misuse of the concept that you have in mind. So I'm mm -hmm. curious, actually, if you think that's a misuse, right? So if I want to say, look, um, like Ezra Klein did when he was talking to Sam Harris, mm -hmm. right? If I want to say, you know, you really aren't fully grasping what Charles Murray is up to unless you understand his goals about, like, how to change social safety nets and projects like that. Um, would you say that that can be done while still, like, I'm still star manning him in the sense that I think Charles Murray genuinely believes that less social safety net would be better for everyone involved. So I'm not calling him a mustache twirling monster. I mm -hmm. just think that he is engaged in a political project right. while not often making that political project explicit. Do you feel like that's an okay. acceptable place, to, uh, acceptable point to, well, to raise I, about someone like that? Yeah, yeah, because mm -hmm. the fact that he's engaging in that political project, the the only reason he's doing that is because he thinks that's the best way to do it, mm -hmm. right? And so if he's wrong or whatever, that's a separate conversation. But mm -hmm. but yeah, okay, there's great. no need to there's no need to divorce him from his political project because his political project is part and parcel of his motivation. Like it's it's the it's the means through which he thinks he can do whatever it is he thinks is best to do. That's good. So to it's hear. totally important to keep that in mind. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's good because uh, I think sometimes people, when they think of this, like, you know, don't, you know, think negatively about the person's motivations that includes, you know, don't ascribe to the motivations that you yourself would think are immoral, even if they think they are moral. Right. Like I think what Charles Murray is mm -hmm. doing is quite wrong. But like in ascribing that to mm -hmm. him, I'm not, you know, making him into a mustache twirler, right? I'm, I'm saying that's what he thinks is the right, right. thing to do. And that's the project he's engaged in. Okay. So right. That, yeah. I think that's, I think that, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you said pity. I would mm -hmm. say compassion. Okay. Sure. And I, th I think there are important distinctions there, but, but, but yeah, that's basically it. I think the way you just, you just said it is perfect. Um, it doesn't mean you agree with him. It doesn't mean he's right. It doesn't mean you think he's right, but you understand the math. It's kind of like you're seeing on paper how they got to where they're getting and okay. what cool. calculations they're making. Yeah. yeah. So I think I'm largely sympathetic to what you're doing there with all those sort of caveats um, in place. Now, I want to move to the second article, if that's all right. Um, and this one, sure. it's... I'm having trouble reconciling these two articles, so I'd like your help here with this. So this was an article about the virtue of selfishness, <laughs> right? And you wrote an article okay. about the virtue of selfishness where you claim there's no such thing as a truly selfless good deed. Um, I'm I'm not quite sure how you reconcile that claim with the star manning claim that we've just discussed. Do you see them as intention or do you do you see them as just sort of two different ways of describing the same thing? Sort of. Yeah. Uh, so part of my point with that piece was that I think we have our, I think we have our terms inverted. I think that, uh, the way that we look at selfishness, we should be looking at selflessness that way and vice versa. 
and only because I'm not I'm not messing with definitions there. I I feel like I'm taking definitions to their conclusions, to their logical conclusion. So can, can you define what you mean for me by self selfish versus selfless? Yeah, so selfish is you know concerned with your with your own self interest, and uh, selfless being you know not concerned with your own self interest or not primarily concerned with your own self interest, right? So the way that I look at it is just that. Uh, anything you do that helps people helps you, right? So there's that, you know, there's that saying, like there's no such thing as a selfless good deed, right? Because if you feel good about it, if you get praise for it, if you benefit from it in some other way, then it's not truly selfless, right? Because you're getting something out of it. And I think that's true. But people usually invoke that saying kind of as a as a negative. They're saying, you know, no matter what you do, you're being selfish. Mm-hmm. And my my framing is just different. My framing is, well, yeah, of course, but that's great. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, anything you do that helps other people is helping you because we live in a society where we're all together. We all need each other. And, you know, like it or not, we're in the same boat. We're all headed in the same direction. And anything that benefits other people is going to benefit you in some way, even if it's just in a tiny way, right? If you do things, if you're kind to people and you're generous and you've created an environment around you where everyone is kind and generous back, you're benefiting from that. And that's a wonderful thing. So mm-hmm. I'm looking at selfishness as a kind of taking it all the way. I think that the reason people think selfishness is a bad thing is because many of us don't take selfishness as far as we should, right? Because, you know, the, the thesis of the piece, the, the point that I get to is that once you pay attention, once you, once you notice what the dynamics are, you realize that the most selfish thing you could possibly do is to be kind and generous and compassionate and giving and loving to everyone as much as possible. Because that fundamentally that creates the world that you want to live in, so it's okay. it's in your own self interest to be, to to you know, be the change you want to see, to be, to be what you want other people to be towards you, right? It's in your self interest. You're going to benefit. Um, so, okay, yeah. So I think this is a situation where I sort of agree with the very very broad claim that personal interest is in many situations tied to group interest in the ways that you're sort of, I think, gesturing towards here. But there seem to be, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. a bunch of potential philosophical pitfalls in a lot of the claims and and, and empirical (laughs) pitfalls as well. So like, first of all, let's just work through some of this. I mean, these are, as as someone who who teaches ethics and who actually specifically teaches a paper about sort of the the idea of the selfishness claim, um, I'm skeptical of the idea Mm -hmm. that the claim human beings always act selfishly is both can be both true and non-trivial at the same time right that that either you have to make it a claim that is so sort of overly simple and and broad and meaningless or i just don't think it's empirically true or philosophically true um so let's look at this a little bit right you said there are no situations in which i can truly act selflessly because i always benefit in some way from acting you know, in, in a way that helps other people. 
but I, I don't, it seems to me that I can easily imagine a scenario mm. in which I benefit someone else without in any way benefiting myself from doing so, right? Like I don't even have to come up with, you know, the jump on the grenade example, right? If I just, let's say I send $10, <laughs> you know, to Oxfam or something like that, and it goes and, and helps someone on the other side of the world, right? You, you know, maybe you can imagine some story about how that person ends up saving my life down the line. But the reality is much more likely I receive no benefit from it. And if we add on, you know, we stipulate that I'm just not psychologically, mm. I don't, I don't, you know, take a ton of pleasure from it, that I just, I feel like I have a moral duty to do this thing. And I do it in the true Kantian fashion, even though I take no pleasure from doing it. Um, you know, that kind of action seems at mm -hmm. least at least possible, right? Maybe, maybe you want to argue that human beings very rarely actually act that way, but it doesn't seem actually impossible for them to do so. Or or do you think that it really is? Uh, well, the thing is that I would say in, in your example, right, you're giving money mm -hmm. to Oxfam and mm -hmm. you don't see the person who gets it. You don't see the actual effects of it, but you're still doing something that you think is good. And even if you tell yourself, that you're not getting any psychological benefit from it, you have to be. Because just for you to be motivated enough to do it and do it again, you have to think to yourself, yes, this is a good thing to do, and I want to be a person who does it. So, okay. And, so the, yeah, okay, great. Yeah, go ahead, sorry. So, uh, well, the, ju there's also just the other thing of anytime you do something like that, you are, even if nobody, even if you don't tell your friends about it, even if you keep it to yourself, um, the fact that you are contributing and Oxfam is receiving this money and using it for other things and you're contributing to that, you are creating a world where that happens and that benefits you, right? You are a part of the solution in that way. And just by being a part of the solution, you are inching us towards a world where more people do that. Just because you're doing it, now there's one more person doing that that wasn't doing it before. That's an improvement. That makes the world a little bit better, and you're benefiting from that. That's the way that I see that. Okay. So the first version you put forward there is the one that I think is where people often land, which I think is the trivially true claim that people do what they want to do, right? If I do mm -hmm. a thing, it's because I wanted to do that thing, right? And that kind of, and like, maybe I wanted to do it out of a pure sense of duty and I derive no pleasure from it. And like, I'm totally emotionally stone-faced as I go through it, but, it, but like, <laughs> but then I think it's not, then you've moved away from the more robust claim that I think you make when you say people always act selfishly because to me, selfishly suggests that oh. they, they act in a way where they, um, you know, prize their own well-being over others. Right. Which is a much more robust claim than people just right. do what they want. Right. You see how you right, see what right. I mean? That those, okay, like, so like, that's a much more sort of um, uh, thinned out yes, kind yes. of claim in that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think so. There's one thing is that I don't think people always act selfishly, even in my framing of that word. Um, and again, I don't really think I'm changing the definition. I just think I'm kind of pushing the definition as far as it can go, and noting that most people don't do that, and that that's why we have this bizarre notion but but people do act selflessly mm -hmm. and in my opinion what that means is when they do something to perpetuate a world where 
people are more hostile to each other. People are less compassionate. People are less generous. They are, they're acting not in their own self-interest because they are also going to um, suffer the consequences of a world where people lie more, people are, are more dishonest, more hostile, less trusting, less compassionate, right? So that's a selfless act because you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot, even if it's a tiny, tiny, tiny way. I mean, that seems I just, like, uh, like, like conflating selfless and harm, like self-harming, right? I could do an act that doesn't benefit me, but also doesn't harm me, right? Um, yeah, you can. You can. Uh, my point was really just to say that mm -hmm. uh, our, our motivation for doing good in the world mm -hmm. can totally be self-interest, and there's no conflict there. That's, that's kind of what I was trying to get at. Is that, okay. you know, I, I'm, I'm, I do all the things that I do. Uh -huh. I, you know, donate the money that I donate and I'm kind and generous to people. And I try my best to be a good example. And I try my best to be compassionate to others, all that stuff. And I'm doing it because I want to live in a world where everyone is like that with everyone else. And so I can at least be one person doing that. So I'm, I'm totally motivated by my desire for this to be how other people are. Okay. Um, I'm sympathetic to yeah. that. I guess my concern, and this is ironic, right? Because of what you just said, I'm concerned that you're not taking selfishness to its logical conclusion here, right? Your view of <laughs> okay. being, right? Your, your view of being fully selfish is being this like thoroughgoing communitarian kind of, you know, work with the group and everybody benefits right. kind of thing. Right. But you know, like if I want to really mm -hmm. maximize my self-interest, right, I really am genuinely the thoroughgoing egoist that you are suggesting that I am. What I should do is benefit the group, <laughs> but also be a free rider in as many situations as I can be a free rider where it doesn't impact mm -hmm. the, the well-being of the group, right? Every situation where I can skim a little bit off the mm -hmm. top and not harm any outcomes as a result, not only... Um, can I, but it seems like on your view where you're saying selfishness is a virtue, I have a moral obligation, one might argue, to engage in that kind of selfless, you know, <laughs> take it, take that little extra bit for myself. Um, is that, is that where you want your view to go? Or do you feel like that's, that's sort of, you want to avoid that kind of outcome? Yeah, I think that, um, that makes sense. I get why people arrive there. But in my view, what happens is that you recognize that this behavior doesn't scale because if everyone is skimming off the top, then the, stru the structure underneath crumbles. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, I'm, I'm personally incentivized not to do that. So even if I can get away with, you know, yeah, everybody's got what they need, but I'm going to take a little bit extra. I'm not incentivized to do that personally because I recognize that if someone else starts doing it, there's going to be a little bit less. And if someone else starts doing it, then there's going to be a little bit less. And next thing you know, we're back at the beginning where everyone is the free for all and everyone is just taking and taking and taking and it creates enmity and it creates hostility. Right. Which so is why I just I see it a, as a crypto egoist, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like I should, I, mean, I should do what I was just describing, but also tell everybody else to be super virtuous, right? And like right. not to do the thing I'm describing. And as long as I'm smart enough and can get away with it, that's a yeah, that's a but better outcome. Is. Okay, so your your argument nobody is, is nobody nobody, nobody, nobody gets, gets away, away with, with it. it. Okay, 
I mean, that to me, yeah, that, eventually that to me someone's going to do the math is more just than it seems like it actually is in my experience. It seems like to me there are individuals who do uh, effectively get away with skimming things off the top in the kind of way that I'm describing or else we wouldn't we wouldn't need they definitely systems do. to prevent them or can convince them yeah. not to do so. Yeah, sure. No, they definitely there definitely are people who do that. Mm-hmm. But uh well, I would argue, first of all, that they're not as slick as they think they are mm. and that they're actually more miserable. OK, so you take um, the happy, the, the unhappy immoral. They, they're, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm not I'm not as uh, well versed in in the philosophy and all that stuff as oh, you no, are, no, but it, you're doing but, great. Um, I mean, this is really I, interesting to me because I rock what you mean. Yeah. Like what I love about this is that you are, we are naturally going back and forth through the chain of arguments that is sort of the core of the selfishness, selflessness debate. Um, and like the, the next reasonable move uh-huh. is to argue that the person I'm describing is, is in some way unhappy, right? They are not living as much of a life of flourishing yeah. as the person who is doing what you want them to be doing. So it, it essentially denies that there could be a happy immoralist. Right. right? And then you get into this whole further debate about like, yeah, is that really possible? Yeah. Or is it really the case that like, there are people who are genuinely really happy just being deeply immoral? Uh, well, I, I would call those people sociopaths, <laughs> which do exist, but, right? Like for example, um, I'm yes, yes, yes. But, but you know, those are exceptions, right? Like there's, mm-hmm. there's something going on in the wiring there. That's, that changes things, but, um, we can, you know, I'm loath to bring him up, but our, our former president, mm-hmm. I think is a, a genuinely sincerely miserable human being. Mm, I can't imagine narcissism, that, you mean? Yeah, well, because of a million of his traits, right? But he he is he is the example of someone that I think is acting perfectly selflessly because he doesn't realize that everything he does and everything he says, every motivation that he has is corrosive to his own just stasis. Like I, I can't imagine that man has felt any kind of joy in the last three decades like real genuine sincere joy Mm -hmm. and i think it's a perfect product of the way he chooses to engage in the world he's got you know he's got the gilded toilet and he's got his name on a bunch of buildings and he's got the trophy wives and he's got this bravado and this bluster and all that bullshit but he is just a deeply miserable human being on the inside and so you can just Mm -hmm. tell that none of his strategies are actually working in the sense that the reason why we want anything, the reason why we do anything is because going back to the, the core things that I mentioned earlier is we, we want satisfaction, we want success, we want safety, we want security, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Those things are not happening for this guy. He's got a sunk cost problem that he's, that he's just ramming his head into, but yeah. He hasn't he hasn't achieved any of those things really. So so here's the thing I'll say I'm sympathetic to that analysis but I also worry that we are wishful thinking our way into believing that Trump is worse off than he actually is in his own mind. I think I <laughs> I, I do think it is true that narcissists like him are always 
feeling a sense of being chased by the risk of being revealed as the failures that they are secretly deeply worried that they actually mm -hmm. are. I also think it's probably the case that he has received a variety of like hits of dopamine and like basic pleasure that have come from like all of the ways that he has gotten power and been treated because of the situation. So while I do think you're right that there's a, a lot, a lot of misery sure. there, I think it's probably not the case that he is experiencing no pleasure as a result result i also think we have to be careful trump is a particularly extreme case i think there are a lot of people in the world who can be immoral and not suffer the same degrees of like psychological collapse that he seems to be dealing with um but <laughs> we talked about this a lot Let me... yeah uh, that's that's definitely true mm -hmm. so so let me before we run out of time on this first episode and then we'll do a part two and talk about some of your other articles i wanted to talk a little bit about this meritocracy article that you wrote um so you wrote this article on meritocracy okay where you claim that it was wrong to call merit racist um now i you know i've been mm -hmm. reading a bunch of the meritocracy stuff i just read sandel's book which i think is really great and everybody should check out um you know it seems to me that the argument is that how merit is defined in our world is based on a system of valuing that are steeped in racism. Um, would you agree that like the things we currently define as worthy of merit in our society uh, to, to varying degrees are built on sort of racial history and racial assumptions? Mm, I'm not sure. It okay. depends on what, what, what definition you're using. So I, I haven't, I haven't read Sandel's book. Um, I've heard I've heard a lot about it, and I'm not sure if I'm defining meritocracy in the same way that he is. I'm not sure if I'm defining it in the same way that you are. So how, how do you define? Uh, them? I tried my best to make that clear. Yeah. So at least for the for the purposes of that piece, um, I made the distinction between meritocracy being you know we have a system where no matter where you come from, no matter who you are. The thing that really matters is your achievement. And if you, you know, if you cross the finish line, you're good, right? That's how we judge people. We judge people by whether or not they cross the finish line. And that's all that matters. And it's totally fair. So we think we're in that. We think we, we have that system, but we really don't. Because mm -hmm. when you pay attention, you realize, well, not everybody has the same starting line. Not everybody's wearing sneakers, right? Not everybody has a track program at their school where they can learn the best ways to breathe and the best ways to run and endurance running and building that up. Right. Not everybody mm -hmm. has those things. So the, the race is fundamentally unfair. The race is fundamentally skewed towards people who just happen to be born um, to the right parents in the right environments mm -hmm. with the right color skin, mm -hmm. you know, without, without the historical, you know, circumstances that lead to being held back, right? All of those things. It's kind of um, that exercise that sometimes people do where they have everybody stand up and they mm -hmm. say, you know, if you have, if you have both parents living together, take a step forward, you know, right. if you privilege walks, yeah. if your parents, yeah, yeah, that thing. So if you have, if your parents went to college, take another step forward. And then you realize like how disadvantaged certain people are just by pure circumstance. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think meritocracy people, people who think, no, man, like the best person wins the best per the cream rises to the top and that's it. It's totally fair. It sounds fair until you pay attention to all those things. Right. But mm -hmm. 
the distinction that I make is that merit still matters, right? Like it still matters that I run the race myself. And if I get to the finish line, I did that myself. I think, I think that part of the problem is we look at meritocracy and we recognize a real problem, a real issue. And instead of correcting the, instead of correcting the kind of scattered starting line problem, we try to correct the finish line problem. We take the finish line and we move it closer to certain people so that they can get across it more easily. Um, And I think that, you know, Mm -hmm. as, as someone who is, you know, um, ostensibly going to benefit from this sort of mindset, right? Like people are going to come to me and say, Hey, look, we're going to help you out with this. We're going to make it easier for you to get into this school. We're going to make it easier for you to, you know, uh, get this certification or whatever. You're actually hobbling me because you're not fixing the actual problem. You're not fixing the problem of, I don't have sneakers. I don't have training. I don't have a track program. You're not fixing those problems. You're just saying, hey, look, the finish line's closer, so you can just limp on over. And I think that what you what you should want to do is give me the sneakers because it's not my fault that I can't afford them, right? Give me the track program because it's not my fault that the neighborhood I grew up in has a terrible school with, with poor funding and has no track program, mm-hmm. right? And then let me run the race myself and let me try to win it myself. And if I cross that finish line, I will know I did that, right? So you've taken the handicaps away from me because it's not fair that I had them in the first place. But once you do that, let me run. That's generally what I'm trying to say there. Okay. So there's definitely a lot going on there. And it's very interesting that you use the race metaphor because that was the same metaphor that LBJ used when he argued for affirmative action because mm-hmm. he wanted to say you can't just take someone's chains off after not letting them walk their entire lives, put them at the front of a starting race and expect them to run, right? And yeah. so so a yeah. couple of things. You say, well, we don't want to move up the finish line. Letting, you know, getting people into college, right? Let's just talk about affirmative action for college for a second, right? People would argue that's not the finish line. It's mm-hmm. the starting line, right? Or it's one of the starting lines. And that it, what, what they're trying to do there yeah. is give you the shoes right is give you the track program so that after college you can have a more successful life as a result i do think there are a lot of people who are working or trying to work towards what you were sort of aiming at which is this a kind of equality of opportunity um but i do think you know there there are a lot of concerns i think with the what you've described there um you know, I'm sympathetic to what you were saying when you were saying, you know, it's there's all these problems, so it's never fair. That's the moral luck issue. Again, one argument that I'm very sympathetic to is that you can never make it actually fair, right? You will never get anything like an equal starting line for everybody involved. So that's that's one kind right. of problem, right? And then another mm-hmm. problem is, and this is this is sort of Sandel's larger point in his book, is that we shouldn't just be trying to fix the meritocracy so that it's actually a, a properly running meritocracy. Meritocracies themselves are immoral because you can't fix the luck problem. And if you attach well-being in life to that luck in that kind of way, you are causing injustice, right? You are causing undeserved harm to certain individuals. Um, so I'm curious if you're, if you're sympathetic to yeah. that kind of pushback. Yeah, I fully agree with that. Um, I, you know, the original piece I wrote was about twice as long. 
and I had to cut it down just because of the limitations of space. But I try to get into that at least a little bit in that um, part of the problem is not everyone is born with the same skills. Not everyone is born with the same tendencies, right? Or talents. And society values different talents differently. And so even if you're an exceptionally gifted, um, let's say a cellist, right? Like you just happen to be an exceptionally gifted cellist. It's not as easy to make a living as a cellist, no matter how great you are, as it is if you are an exceptionally gifted litigator, let's say, right? Mm -hmm. Our society values right. things differently. If you're a surgeon, if you just happen to be just, you know, for some reason, your retention for biology and physiology is, is incredible and you just become this, you know, wunderkind surgeon, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you're going you're gonna to do great because the world needs those and wants those desperately. We don't want cellists that badly, mm -hmm. right? We like them. They're cool, right? And a few of them will, will become, you know, world renowned and all that stuff, but it's not the same thing. And it's totally just a matter of luck, as you mentioned. So that's why I point out, you know, we need robust safety nets. We, mm -hmm. need, we need to raise the floor so that even though, um, even though, you know, you're a gifted cellist and society doesn't value that as much, that doesn't doom you to a life of destitution, right? It's not fair. Mm -hmm. And we should fix that because we recognize that reality. It doesn't mean that we should force people to like cellists more, mm -hmm. right? It makes sense that we want surgeons. It makes sense that surgeons are extremely important and we want the best ones to come up, right? That just makes sense. There's no real, I don't see any real like problem, ethically speaking, with that. But we yeah. should recognize that um, mm -hmm. just because someone isn't born with those talents that society deems more, more important doesn't mean that they should suffer. Right. So there's that, too. I'm, I'm hesitant even on the like we should it's OK to value surgeons more things. So this is like a classic, you know, what is more important for society, surgeons or garbage people like people who clean the trash? <laughs> right, 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 right. I would yeah, argue yeah. <laughs> the first the, the, the garbage people are, are, you know, people who are taking, picking up the trash. Right. Waste disposal people are in many ways more fundamentally essential to like if I had if I had a society that either mm -hmm. didn't have surgeons or didn't clean up its trash, right? It's pretty easy, I think, for me, which one I would pick in this kind of way. Or at least we could argue they're both fairly essential, right? It seems like you desperately would prefer to have both of them yes. in your society. So yes. I, I do worry that yes. what we see is a lot of emphasis on that like the 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 merit, right? is assigned to things that are viewed as certain kinds of information, high information based activities, like being a surgeon or even more uselessly, right? Being mm -hmm. like a hedge fund manager or something like that, right? Where we need to be, if we're going to be talking about merit yeah, at all, yeah. assigning merit much more to other kinds of activities. And I do think there are not just sort of cultural and like class-based but also again sort of gender and race-based issues that are going into this so for example on the gender side you know women's labor is consistently undervalued because it is perceived to be women's labor there's a bunch of data about this um so i worry mm -hmm. that we we don't want to even assume that like our current or anything like our current standards of what are the high merit and low merit jobs in that kind of sense are accurate in that kind of way. What would you, what do you think about that? Mm -hmm. 
Oh no, I'm with you. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, I what I meant was just that you know, uh, surgery is complicated. It requires a certain level of skill, a certain level of intellect, um, for lack of a better word. Like you need to know a lot of stuff. You need to be really smart. You need to know what you're doing. You know, um, mm-hmm. not everyone is going to be suited to that, right? And whatever the the metric is to you know whatever the test is, whatever the bar is that people need to clear to actually, you know, guarantee that they are one of these capable people able to do this very difficult job. I think that that makes sense. That's Mm -hmm. what I mean by the merit thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but in terms of valuing, uh, valuing people who do certain jobs, I think, yeah, we need to change the, the culture around that, right? Looking down on garbage men is totally unethical to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't see, um, a surgeon as being of any higher moral value than, you know, a grocery store clerk. And just like you pointed out, I mean, I think the pandemic made this very salient for people who maybe otherwise wouldn't have thought about it, but just, just the fact that we realized, oh, all these people that we, we look down on, all these people that we kind of dismiss and that many of us mistreat. Mm-hmm. Without them, this entire place would have fucking collapsed, mm-hmm. right? And I had the I had the point of you know you know all these people we're calling essential right now, let's keep calling them essential even after this is over, because that might change the way we talk about them. That might change the way we think about how they're compensated and how they're treated. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So so I'm totally with you there. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's hard to sort these things out. Like I do you know, recognize the realities financially about, you know, demand for various skills is going to actually just be based on people's actual demand for those skills to some extent. Um, You can only sort of Mm -hmm. artificially um, mess with that demand to some extent. I think generally my experience of the people who want to dismantle meritocracy is not that they want to you know, refuse to acknowledge that you play a really good piano or something like that, right? They want to disentangle yeah, yeah. what you were saying there, disentangle your value as a person from your ability to produce good music mm-hmm. or content or whatever it is that you are able to produce with your merit, which is what meritocracies have really been, is this assigning of social value based on your abilities to jump through whatever hoops are valued at that point right. in time. So let me let me ask you one more question and then we'll wrap up this part one. Yeah. Um, this is uh, I want to bring Charles Murray back into it as well, because as I was reading through your article and I was trying to think about, you know, examples of how merit itself is defined racially a lot of the time, because you were talking specifically about don't racialize merit. And it made me think of Murray's book, Human Accomplishments. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a book where he essentially sort of categorizes Mm -hmm. great human accomplishment, you know, human merit in this kind of way. Um, And because of the various ways Mm -hmm. in which he chops up the the periods that he's looking at the ways in which he sort of defines what counts as valuable and not he for example leaves out of the music section jazz entirely right you end up with a book that is fairly lily white Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways right it is filled with a lot of old white dudes Mm -hmm. um and, and 
I think you could argue that that is not, and like people have pointed to that book and said, see, this is proof that like white civilizations are better. Look at all the like advancements that they've created compared to other people. But I think you could reasonably just argue that like Murray <laughs> is not including the full breadth and width of human merit. And so giving that kind of racialized impression, um, I don't know, you haven't read the book, but like, does that strike mm -hmm. you as a case where, you know, we, we should be concerned about like how merit is being assigned to different genres of music or something like that in such a way as to, you know, preserve the superiority of the classics, for example. Uh, yeah, I, I don't have any. Um, yeah, I'm not familiar with pretty much any of Murray's work, so I can't really speak to that. But um, yeah, I think. I don't, I don't have a problem with that really. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't have a problem with that criticism. Mm -hmm. um, leaving out jazz makes no sense to me. Uh, and yeah, it's how we apply merit, right? That's a little bit different than what I was talking about in the piece. Mm -hmm. And I, I realized that people use the, those two terms in different ways and it can get muddy. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, I don't have a problem with that. And I, I just want to say that, um, I point out in the piece and I'm very um I'm very open to the fact that I recognize what is being intended when people say stuff like merit is racist that meritocracy is racist mm -hmm. um because you're talking about outcomes right you're talking about disadvantaged groups such as you know the one that I ostensibly belong to it's it's there's going to be an effect and that effect is going to ripple out and that effect is going to continue to affect future generations unless we do something about it. I just think we need to be careful how we do that. Mm -hmm. And when I heard merit is racist, not meritocracy, but merit also, and especially in the context of standardized testing and you know um, admissions criteria, things like that, what I heard was we're going to change this to make it easier for you black and brown people to, to make it over the hurdle. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think that that's, that's not a good solution. That's a, it's a, it's an, it's a response to a real problem that I agree with. And the intentions there are, are also ones that I agree with. I don't think that's a smart way to do it because it has these negative consequences, mm -hmm. but I'm 90% with, people who want to change things because they recognize that the structures are totally off balance, totally fucked up. So I do think that. that that bigotry of low expectations problem is a real problem. And I, um, I won't totally scoop mm -hmm. Sandel, but he, I think has a, an interesting idea for a kind of mixed luckocracy where it's a kind of mm -hmm. weighted system, a weighted lottery system that makes it so that people, you know, you can't claim, well, we know for sure this person got in because of their race as opposed to they just won the lottery that we all participated in, which I think is an interesting way to try to avoid yeah. um, that particular kind of problem. But we're, we're way over time here on this part one. So do you want to let folks know where they can find you in the mm -hmm. meantime? Okay. Sure. Uh, the best place is angeleduardo.com, my official website. You can find all my writing and music and links to all the relevant stuff there. And I'm also on Twitter. Um, you can find that through my website as well. And uh, yeah, 
that's about it. Okay, great. Well, hopefully we'll have y'all all back for the part two. Um, we've got a couple more good articles to work through here. And I really appreciate you uh, coming on here and letting me ask you all these questions, Angel. It does help me, I think, feel a little bit more uh, at peace with some of the some of the things that you've written. I don't agree with all of it, but I, I think uh, it, is, it is helping me right to further star man you. Oh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks so much to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our newest patrons, Sherna Perez and Mitch Comfort. Uh, and as always, thanks to our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Dude, Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman, Fix the Vote, Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb. Once COVID is blown over, Heathen the Vegan needs to get a drink with edgy, edgy, <laughs> with edgy veggie and talk some philosophy. Vegan the Heathen too. Chad T. And as always, thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. It really does make a big difference. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, right here, right now, remember, you are the void and the void is you.